Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That's our super producer, the one and only Max Williams. They call me Ben, and I got to tell you, out of all the carbs, all the carbs in the world, potatoes are number one for me. Sorry, beer. Potatoes? Boil mm-hmm. them, mash them, stick them in a stew? Mm-hmm. Taters, spuds. Yeah. Uh, there's gotta uh, be others. It's gotta yeah. be others. Uh, just make some up. Dirt munches. Uh huh. Tubers. Dirt, yeah. Tubers. There you go. Tubers. Tubers actually refers to like what the the thing that they grow from, right? Sort of like bulbs. Sort of like tulip bulbs. I think the things you plant to grow potatoes are called tubers. Or it's 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 like a genre of uh of root of edible root, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the underground part of a stem or a rhizome. Mm-hmm that serves as a food reserve. It does bear buds from which new plants can grow. Right. It's like when you take a potato and you stick it, you can, you can actually grow a potato from a potato. The, the, like, you know, when you actually, when you leave a potato out for too long, those tubers start to come out almost like some sort of weird Cthulhu-esque creepers. I'm Noel, by the way. Yes, yes, you're Noel. And a potato is a, a typical tuber. It's a great example of a delicious tuber. All you need is a little bit of salt, some some butter, source of heat and an imagination, and you can <laughs> yes. you can take potatoes pretty far, right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. But a lot like uh, other you know earlier forms of uh, of foodstuffs that we now know and enjoy, like the banana potatoes, weren't always the potatoes we know and love today, were they? No, they weren't, Noel. And I love that you're bringing this up. So this is this is odd. This has happened a couple of times in Europe. There are some uh, some specific types of produce or even dishes that become closely associated with a given country, but those fruits and vegetables, or tubers in this case, are not themselves native to the European continent. You know, uh, some people are surprised to learn that tomatoes were not native to Italy and weren't around for a long, long time, and the same is true with Ireland and potatoes. Are you implying the potatoes migrate? <laughs> yes. That was a Monty Python reference. But no, it's true. I mean, potatoes, you, you can't, you're inseparable from, from the Irish culture, almost like in this cliche, sort of obnoxious, almost condescending way, right? Oh, sure. The idea of, uh, of Irish, Irish being sort of simple folk, potato farmers, like subsisting on very bland foods. And uh, of course, the, the famous potato blight or the potato famine of uh, mm-hmm. Irish history is also a huge part of, of that country's uh, identity. But they're, you're right, they're not native to um, Ireland at all. In fact, they're not native to anywhere in Europe. They originally were domesticated in the Andes Mountains in Peru, uh, also in northwest Bolivia. Uh, and they were used for food as far back as 8,000 B.C. We've got a great Ooh. article from Mental Floss about the history of potatoes. Highly recommend checking that one out. But they didn't taste the same back then either. They were oddly shaped, or at least 
oddly compared to the, you know, very typical oblong potato shape that we know and love today. But they also tasted bitter. And, you know, how some vegetables have a little bit of a bitter taste. And then when you cook them, that can kind of dissipate a little bit. This was not the case. No amount of preparation or cooking could get rid of that bitter taste. And also, mm-hmm. some of them were, were toxic. And llamas yeah. had a really great trick for making sure they didn't die from eating these uh, bitter potatoes, right? Yeah, yeah. That bitter taste was, you know, a little bit of poison. Just a not, bit. not a ton. Just mm-hmm. a touch. Just a touch of poison. Yeah, llamas would lick clay before they ate potatoes in the wild, and the poisonous parts of these potatoes essentially would stick with the clay particles, and then it would travel safely through the animal's body. So people in the Andes noticed this, and then they started dunking their potatoes in a mixture they had made of clay and water. You know, this wasn't exactly haute cuisine, but it did make the potato edible and a little more enjoyable. And we're on a bit of a quest today to understand how the human species got from llama impersonators in Peru, at least when it comes to cuisine, all the way to the modern day when potatoes are a worldwide phenomenon. uh, And they're especially popular in Europe, because as we're going to see, this was not always the case. But like you said, Noel, Peru, that's where our story starts. This was a very important foodstuff for people in the Andes Mountains. This was a a staple product. And we know this went on for centuries and centuries in that part of the world. But the fact is, you guys, no one had seen a potato in Europe. No European had seen a spud before Spanish conquistadors invaded South America way back in, what, the early 1500s, 1530, and overthrew the Incan Empire. Yep. And uh, with that, like many things we see that uh, start popping up in Europe, usually come from some sort of uh, tragedy, traumatic cultural event or uh, decimation. So is the case with the potato. I just want to add one more little thing. There's a really great little tidbit in the Mental Floss article by Michelle Debchak that even today, those uh, slightly poisonous potatoes, you can still get them at Andean markets and they're sold with like a little digestion aid, a little packet of this digestion aiding clay um, kind of mixture. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And it just shows that, you know, even if it's poison, tradition is, uh, is important. But you're right, Ben. Around the mid-1530s, the Incan Empire was overthrown by uh, Spanish conquistadors, and so came the spud, the noble spud, to Europe in the 16th century. But it was not met with open arms, Ben. It was not met with open arms. The Spanish brought the potato back from South America, and at this point, they'd kind of bred it or cultivated it in such a way that it was totally edible. You didn't have to, you know, mix it with uh, dirt or, or clay mm-hmm. dust and water The native people did that. The Spanish didn't help The Spanish all. did not. No, they were not about that life. But here's the thing, and I love this. This is so interesting. Remember those tubers we were talking about? Um, well, this is a myth, I think, but it's interesting because you hear it about a lot of stuff that is easily debunked. The idea that Europeans didn't like any um, plants or, or you know, foodstuffs that weren't expressly mentioned in the Bible. Shout out to the state for anybody who remembers the fantastic, wildly underrated sketch show, The State. There's this wonderful sketch where they talk about 
whether or not penguins are in the Bible, uh, this this family. And that's that's kind of a descendant of this idea. This did happen, though. This has been debunked in different cases, right? Different specific cases. But we do know that more conservative people of the time literally would say, well, I don't know. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. I, we just, if it was in the Bible, they would have wrote it down, right? Somebody would have written it down. That is a pitch-perfect 16th century Flemish accent. It really is, wondering. Well yeah, done. You, I applaud you. Um, but, okay, so we, we know this has been debunked. Like, I think, what? Right. Were, were tomatoes not mentioned in the Bible? And there was, like, a theory that that was one. Of, we, we talked about tomatoes and the mm-hmm. idea that people thought they were poison, too. And the right. fact that they weren't mentioned in the Bible was a thing. But, anyway, there's there's lots of examples of that. But another reason for suspicion around these edible underground Rudy boys uh, were the fact that they were grown from these tuber things that uh, vaguely resembled the boils on the skin of lepers. So, yeah, mm-hmm. here's the mm-hmm. thing. We we know that there, there are a couple of other issues, right? Like, cabbage didn't get a lot of shine in the Bible. Cabbage doesn't have an awesome cameo moment, but it was still really popular. Tulips, that, that was also happening at the same time. That didn't seem to bother people. And, you know, when we're looking at the expansion of all these... All these new types of unseen fruit and vegetable or never before seen fruit and vegetable arriving in Europe from North and South America, we know that people are dealing with a lot of crazy things they haven't seen before, right? And they're trying to compare them to things they already are aware of. Check out our pineapple episode because that's a a wild ride. So the other issue here is that South American climates are not like the climates that you will find in Western Europe, especially when you talk about hours of daylight per day Mm -hmm. during winter and so on. So when they take these spuds, these tubers to Europe, they see the potatoes grow leaves and flowers, and the learned folks of the day are studying up on them. But the tubers they create don't quite get to the size of potatoes in Peru. Because they, you know, they're in a different climate. And so the Spanish started trying to figure out where they could grow these, similar to the way that the English were trying to figure out how they could grow pineapples. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, do check it out. God, what a weird, people used to rent pineapples. It's it didn't happen with potatoes. No one started renting potatoes yet. No. But- well, they weren't very pretty. Again, like I said, people thought they resembled the kind of stunted little nubby things that would form on, on the skin of lepers or when their fingers would be have to be removed, et cetera. Very, very ghastly kind of stuff. I just want to point out, uh, I had a, my mom did this like Christmas in July thing because, uh, you know, after, you know, COVID relatively being somewhat dealt with enough to at least like hug your grandma, we hadn't seen our family, um, you know, members in in a long time, even before COVID. Um, so we did a little Christmas in July thing and I went, I couldn't notice that she had this massive pineapple in this fruit bowl that clearly was not for consumption, was clearly just for decoration. Uh, and I mentioned to her that, uh, hey, you know, back in the day, uh, this would have cost you a pretty penny just to rent. Um, but no, definitely not the case with potatoes, but they did yep. start, um, potatoes were prettier back then though, weren't they, Ben? They like actually flowered and they would be uh, studied by botanists, these uh, mm-hmm. potato flowers, these kind of like very um, uh, ornate uh, little blooms right yeah yeah like i was saying the the climate was such that they could have these leaves and flowers 
But again, the tubers themselves were not reaching the size that you right. would find in in South America. So the Spanish did something that was pretty intelligent. They were aware of the climate and they said, okay, we'll try to grow potatoes somewhere else. We'll grow them on the Canary Islands, which is kind of, think of it like the Goldilocks zone between the northern climate of Europe and the, the more equatorial climate of South America. Still, when we talk about the controversy, I think it's hard for a lot of us in the modern day to realize or to think of potatoes as a controversial thing, because for many of us, wherever you are in the world, or most most places in the world, potatoes are a common, known, very non-controversial thing, right? Nobody, mm -hmm. it's not what, you know, part by French, but it's not as if I've, any of us are going to hop on to record Ridiculous History, and you guys will ask me what I had to eat, and I'll say, oh, I got a patty melt and some hash browns, and then hear Max go, oh, shit. Like that's, that's bro. Just did you sprinkle it with holy water? Did you uh, did did you say the sacraments above it? You know that that was you, a thing. Yeah, you know it's not in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. You okay? Well, you mm -hmm. okay with that? Yeah, you're right. No, I'm yes. not, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, you had to plant it at a specific time too, right? In some parts, particularly on Good Friday, to prevent it from, I guess, becoming evil. Again, those little tubers are kind of creepy looking. I look at them and I can't not think of like the eldritch, you know, gods or Ooh, whatever. Like they've got the cordyceps. This, like, uh huh. hundred, a hundred percent. Those like what do they call call those? Ben, those the sprouting or fruited, uh, you know, members. I guess that come out of it's the thing in the the Last of Us games. You yeah, know, they, they I make just started the, playing that. Mm -hmm. Good, good, good stuff. Good franchise. But here's the thing. What we, what we need now, Ben, what, what history needs now is a potato evangelist, someone to, to come and normalize potatoes and really, you know, sing its praises of the humble potato. And we got that in the form of Antoine Augustin Permentier, who was like, you could consider him like the ultimate hype man for the Ooh. potato. He's a potato promoter. He's a potato proselytizer. Mm -hmm. He's a spud spokesman. He's a, he's a tater uh, trumpeter. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We could get a different term for that one. We'll fix it in post. Max, fix that one in post. Ah, Solanasia, <laughs> uh, but no, this dude, uh, Antoine Augustin Permentier, was born in 1737. Mm -hmm. um, he went on to become a pharmacist. Uh, he was French, obviously, in the French army during the Seven Years' War. There's a really excellent article from Atlas Obscura that also gives a wonderful rundown of the history of the potato by Jim Clark. Highly recommend checking that out. And we're going to pull some information from that article as well today. But yeah, pharmacist uh, during the, the Seven Years' War, um, he actually became a prisoner of war, uh, yeah. during which time the Prussians gave their prisoners potatoes. And the French at the time, um, as we've discussed, still viewed potatoes quite negatively. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy because some of my favorite potato recipes are, are French influence now. But anyway, this is the thing. So imagine you're in prison in Prussia. Life stinks, right? And and you're this pharmacist, Parmentier, and he's eating these potatoes in prison. And he goes, "These things are actually not bad. They're not yeah. deadly. They're they're actually they're pretty great. Like yep. I'm thinking right now, just on their own, seven out of ten, and I can make it a nine. Parmentier's thinking. Uh, he 
is eventually released at the end of the war after three years have passed. And he can't stop thinking about these potatoes. It's the, like, it's weird. They're on his mind. He's been through a literal war, you guys. And people are asking him about the war and how he was a POW in Prussia. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, have you heard of potatoes, though? Because, like, I've, uh, the war, that's a five-minute conversation. But mm-hmm. I have, like, two days if you want to talk taters with me. Uh, I do want to shout out Rebecca Earle, a professor in the Department of History at the University of Warwick. She wrote an awesome book called Feeding the People, The Politics of the Potato. We're going to be pulling some citations from her in a piece she wrote called How Potatoes Conquered the World. I uh, just wanted to shout out, if you like books about very specific things like me, then check yeah. out Dr. Earl's uh, Politics of the Potato. So, Ben, you're asking me about the potato, and I'm like, I don't know. I heard it was uh, <laughs> of the devil. You know, I don't trust it. I don't uh, wait, don't want it to. Wait. I heard it was poisonous. Um, uh, changed my mind. Way, way. <laughs> so, yeah. that's, uh, I'm like, I'm like that guy at the table. I'm like that guy at the table <laughs> with the sign that says, potatoes are of the devil. Change my change mind. Change my mind. Well, and that's Permentier's job, is to change mm-hmm. my, my mind or our collective minds as a nation. How does he do it? How does he do it? So first off, he says, you know, study thyself. And he's like, I pretty much just ate potatoes for three years. And I'm alive. I feel good. I feel pretty pro-tater. That was a rough one. We stuck the landing. Max, no. (laughs) Max doesn't approve of that one. (laughs) Pro-tater. So I think I'm going to get a groan soundtrack for that one. I earned it. Uh, So there's this historical novelist, Catherine Delors. Uh, Catherine Delors writes quite a bit about this and says that it was typical of the time for people to challenge these old ideas. So, Noel, you're the guy at the table saying, change my mind. And Parmiente says, I am going to change your mind. Uh, I'm not just going to bore you with a bunch of science and a bunch of facts. I'm going to do some flair. I'm going to have some pizzazz on this. I'm going to I'm gonna wow you. We're going to shock and awe you in a war for the hearts and minds of people when it comes to potatoes. So at this time, we have to mention this is... 1772, his first step is to get the French government and the medical community, doctors, on board. And as Farmer's Almanac reports, France had had a potato ban for a while. Did you see that? France had a potato ban? I mean, really, they were just like, you know what? It's not enough to just kind of malign the poor potato. Let's just outright ban it, like (laughs) schedule it like a drug or something like that. What was their reasoning? Was it because of the poison potential or was it because they just just didn't like it? They thought it was uh, it was low. Yeah, I love the idea of a French PSA from the 1700s. Like, are your children eating potatoes? And then all kinds of weird you know, like war on drugs-esque facts, where it's mm-hmm. like true stories. School children are leaving school to dig to the ground with their bare hands, all in the search for a spud. Dun, dun, dun. Speaking of which, Ben, that term spud actually comes from the hole that you dig to make the, to plant the potato. That's the spud and also refers mm-hmm. to like a short, blunt knife that might have been used to dig those uh, those holes for, for planting potatoes. I, I was looking that up on the fly. I didn't know. That's awesome, man. Thank you for that. I love some etymology. We also do know why, roughly why, the French banned the potato. French Parliament banned them in 1748 because 
they believed that this resemblance to uh, leprosy, right? The way the potato reminded them of leprosy mm -hmm. was therefore indicative, like was therefore going to create leprosy in people that consumed it. So they thought they were outlawing a vector for a disease. Isn't it funny how so much stuff was based on just sheer Appearance. You know, obser observational observation alone based on no science. But we have to remember, though, this was the beginning of the Enlightenment, which is partly, I think, why Permentier got a little traction, because people were beginning to open up their minds to not think that way. Right. To, to be more mm -hmm. like, well, you know, let's just give it a try. Um, mm -hmm. Let's try some new things. Maybe uh, looks can be deceiving. And uh, it turns yeah. out um, he was pretty successful in, uh, in that campaign. Yeah, and they were also, we have to remember, they were driven by starvation as much yeah, well, as they were. That's, that's a big one, too. Like, uh, if, you, uh, if you have people who are, are experiencing food insecurity, then, of course, some of those social taboos are going to loosen up a bit. Yeah, so Parmentier does this thing that is pretty clever. He first goes to scientific institutions, specifically the Parisian Faculty of Medicine, and then, according to Catherine Delors, what he's after is an official statement that potatoes are not even good for you, but not as dangerous as they have been believed to be. So it's kind of like he's saying, it's kind of like he's, he's saying, look, potatoes are on the level of a firearm, but they're not a nuclear bomb. Just say that. And because people have Pretty much everybody alive at this point in France has been alive during some period of food insecurity. And there had been a recent harvest that failed in 1770. So there was already a prize out for anybody who could, who could you know, offer solutions to this recurrent problem with famine. And they, they were probably expecting stuff like a um, new kind of planting technique or a new kind of irrigation system. They weren't expecting the profit of potatoes to come through. And he went hard in the paint. He published this essay called Inquiry into Nourishing Vegetables That in Times of Necessity Could Substitute for Ordinary Food. Breath. Whew. My goodness, these uh, these titles for these essays back then were not the I sexiest, know, but right? it, it got the job done, right? So absolutely, that is, you could consider that his like potato treatise. And he had sort of a three-pronged approach to uh, gaining wide acceptance of the potato. First, he needed to get the French government and the medical community on board, because again, there was still a little bit of vagueness around whether the potatoes were even safe. So uh, in 1772, um, after he published this treatise, he started to circulate this among the you know, government officials that he was tight with um, and people in the medical community. So there started to be more of a conversation around it. Next, of course, is to, you know, got to sex them up a little bit, dress that humble potato up in a nice cocktail dress and uh, send it out on the town. So he did that and he started to introduce potatoes to Paris's uh, sort of bougier high society types, right? Yeah, and this is an important step. So he gets some of the big VIP names of the day, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, noted chemist in France, to come to his dinners, which are these pretty high-class affairs centered on the humble potato. And just to give you a sense of how profoundly potato-centric this was, he would have as many as 20 courses featuring potatoes. 
And it seems that this is a cool story. So, Noel, Max, you guys like French fries, right? You're not against the fry. Sure. What am I, a monster? (laughs) Right. What kind of, what's your favorite French fry type? Or what are some of your favorites? Oh, Max, you go first. I need to think for a second. I mean, you can never like beat like the classic McDonald's fries. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't eat fast food really ever, but oh wow, yeah, high road, high roadness. No, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, yes, yeah, somewhat. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, they're just like you know the quintessential fries. I mean, they're over salted. There's virtually no potato to it. It's mm-hmm. just been deep fried. It's just a vessel for something to be fried, and I think that makes them pretty much amazing. I like a good home fry. I like a potato wedge. Shout out to one of our favorite local bars uh, and restaurants, The Righteous Room. They do a really, really nice, crispy on the outside, soft on the inside. Uh, serve it up with a little uh, of that uh, salt and uh, and a vinegar, a malt vinegar. Mm-hmm. And that's an excellent uh, potato. But you're right, uh, Max. I do think the French fry, uh, or oftentimes the potato, it can be just a flavor vector. Oh, yeah. Not, not a vector for disease, though. Right, right. Dive vector for disease. I gotta tell you, I had some, I get this weird thing with steak fries specifically. I don't trust them because mm. they're like, they're, well, they're mashed potatoes in disguise, you know, like the big True. steak fries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But to teach their own, the, the righteous room does kill it with the potato wedges. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Uh, but the, the, I, the thing is, there's so many varieties of French fry. They, it's hard to believe they didn't really exist in the U.S. for a long time until, or what would become the U.S. for a long time, North America and Canada, until Thomas Jefferson, and this is not confirmed, but Thomas Jefferson may have interacted with Parmentier and been so inspired that he brought back the idea for what we call the French fry with him to Monticello and served it later at a White House dinner. This comes to us from a cool book called Potato, A History of the Propitious Esculent by John Reeder. Ben, do you have a preference for a potato preparation? It can be a fry, it can be a mash, uh, uh, you know, home uh, uh, hash brown. Uh, I'm just interested. I almost sent you guys this picture over the weekend. I don't know if you saw it, but I cooked one of my favorite new potato recipes. It's not, it's new to me. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the, have you, you've heard of fondant potatoes? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Is that like a scalloped potato, Ben? Yeah, yeah, exactly. With it's, cream it's, and garlic and butter and all that? Well, the way I do it without sounding too parmentier is just this recipe that it takes a little bit of time, but it is more than worth it. You, ca- you do a cast iron thing. You got some thyme, T-H-Y-M-E, some butter. If you look at pictures of it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Oh, I see. No, they're almost like they look like a scallop. They almost look like yeah. a sea scallop because they're these little like potato mm-hmm. stacks. That looks amazing. No, I was thinking more of a a, a scallop potato, um, which is, uh, I believe, like thinly uh, sliced oh, layers yeah. of potato layered with cream and butter and garlic. And uh, it's uh, absolutely, my mom makes it and made it for this uh, Christmas in July situation. But um, mashed potatoes were one of the, and any of these could have potentially been on the table, literally at uh, one, right. of, uh, one of these dinners, one of these potato centric multi-course dinners but mashed potatoes was obviously a hit and, and a favorite and they, they persevere to this day as like a holiday staple and i believe in the uh the art of cookery which is an 18th century recipe book uh, written by um the english author hannah glass um this is believed 
to be the first ever recipe for uh, mashed potatoes. And really, honestly, outside of a couple little additions, this is pretty much the way it's done today, right, Ben? Yeah, here's the idea. It's one of those things uh, where the approach is kind of like, don't fix it if it's not broken. The art of cookery just says the following. Boil your potatoes, peel them, put them into a saucepan, mash them well. To two pounds of potatoes, put a pint of milk, a little salt, stir them well together, take care they don't stick to the bottom, then take a quarter of a pound of butter, stir it in, and serve it up. Pretty simple, right? Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would personally probably add some garlic to that, maybe a little heavy cream. I wouldn't um, peel them. I wouldn't peel them. I, 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 I like, like using red on. potatoes. I like the skin on yeah. these red potatoes instead of those big uh, baked potatoes that I think is the quintessential, or, or rather baking potatoes that is the quintessential potato I think that we would have been thinking of uh, in this period as well, right? Throw some the, garlic in mm, it too. Yeah. Know, oh, a million dirty. percent. Why? A million percent. Yeah. A million percent. So this these dinners become quite the sensation. And uh, so, okay, tier two of his uh, three-tiered plan is absolutely a success. I mean, uh, Jefferson even ended up keeping a copy of that potato treatise in his presidential library at Monticello. Um, he got he got compromised. Big potato got to him. Big potato got to him. And um, even, like, royalty got in on the mix. Like, King Louis the uh, 16th, I believe, uh, and um, Marie Antoinette um, are believed to have used potato flowers, right? These beautiful purple potato flowers um, as decorations for their clothes. Uh, and like, you know, like lapel pins and, and hat uh, adornments or whatever. So now we're into phase three. One and two, smashing success. Uh, wh- where are we going for phase three? Ah, Yes. The smashing or mashing success is only <laughs> oh. going to be tipping. You're welcome, Max. Audible groan from Max. Uh, we're doing this. We're we're doing this for you, Max. So, uh, this this stuff is all well and good for the upper classes, right? But if you want this to have a lasting impression, and from Parmentier's perspective, if you want it to be useful to people, then it has to be useful to the common people. Who was that band who had that song "Common People"? It starts with a P. Pulp. Oh, Pulp. yeah, yeah, great song. That's a Jarvis jam. Cocker. Love that one. Yeah, Hold, holds up. So this guy's like, you know, potatoes need to be for the common people. Potatoes need to be something that common people do or eat. Mm-hmm. So all his publicity stunts aren't really getting the job done outside of the upper crust, right? The upper crust of the fry of uh, social class. So Parmentier tries something different, doesn't he, Noel? He goes to the king and asks for a favor. He does, yeah. He goes to the king, King Louis Sixteenth, um, and uh, requests a plot of land, a tract of land uh, at Sablon. Uh, and this is in 1781. And the king, you know, having already been impressed with the moxie of this uh, this pharmacist, of uh, this POW, this potato evangelist, um, grants him this plot of land, which Parmentier immediately turns into uh, a potato patch. This is also, this land is located on the western edge of the Paris uh, metro area, I guess you could say. Um, and then he hired all of these heavily armed guards to kind of make it a big 
you know, sort of almost like theatrical show of how important these potatoes are. Um, and he thought that people would notice the guards and assume that potatoes were some sort of really hot new commodity uh, and anything that's you know being guarded so um, assiduously, to, to borrow one of your favorite words, Ben, uh, would uh, be worth stealing, right? Yeah, there it is. You create the buzz by sort of faking demand until you make it, you know? Uh, this is this is great, but there's even it go this conspiracy goes a step further. This is the coolest heist moment of the show. So imagine uh, Noel Max, fellow ridiculous historians listening along at home. Imagine that we get together a heist crew. We're <laughs> We're in France and we say they're guarding something secret. We're going to bust it and take it because we're the best thieves there are. And so we all have our, you know, it's a heist movie. We all have our specialties. Uh, Noel, I know that you have a special um, proclivity for being a bag man, right? Yeah. You're going to be oh, the yeah. bag man. Yeah, yeah, I'm the bag man. <laughs> so e easily. That's, 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 that's who I am. Um, I carry a bag typically every day. So that's why. So we won't spend too much time on everybody else's specialties, but our heist crew goes in and we pull off our heist. We discover the secret. It's potatoes. And somehow, somehow we get away. Yeah, we didn't really train that much even for this. You know, we're not particularly adept heist people. You know, we don't I even mean, know what we're looking for. I don't even know what a bag man does. I just say I'm the bag man because I like to carry a bag and then people make fun of me and call it a man purse. But I'm a bag man. Thank you very much. But yet we get in and out. It's almost like these guards are letting us uh, get away with these potatoes. Why would they do that, though, Ben? Why would they do that? Because their boss told them to. You know how heist movies have the stereotypical twist, right? In the third act or whatever. This right. is the third act twist. Mm -hmm. Parmentier has set up this a heavily guarded situation, and the he's told the guards, look, if any thieves come by, let them get away with the potatoes. This has got to be great for the potatoes' reputation. Now in my head, he's like a Hollywood producer, and he's smoking a cigar. Totally. Yeah, something. He's like, this has got to be great for the, the potatoes' uh, public image here. Mm -hmm. Look, if, any, if anybody comes up and they try to bribe you, uh, just give them some potatoes. Take the bribe, no matter how big it is, no matter how small, whatever they could. It doesn't have to be money. If they come up to you with like a shoe, or a handful of dirt, you give them a potato. You got to wonder, did, did they did they fire some half-assed warning shots? Like, no, come <laughs> back here, you. Like Gene come Wilder back. and Willy Wonka? Exactly. No, Just, help. yes, no, no. What are you doing? Bring back that potato. No, yeah, I, I, they had to have at least given put, put up some sort of a faux fight or else I think the ruse uh, would have been a little too uh, transparent, right? Mm, a little too obvious, right? You have to, because, you know, these thieves have presumably worked on their idea. It, it feels kind of, it, it's kind of a deflation, mm -hmm. isn't it? If, you, if you're like, guys, we have, we have these matching dark outfits. We worked on our like silent hand signals and you, you just let us in. At least give me a good beating or something like that, you know, and then let me go. Uh, but no, it's true. And this 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 publicity stunt, uh, even though it wasn't apparent to those involved that that's what it was, that is what it was. And it worked. 
By the way, there's a really, really cool article uh, in the Farmer's Almanac, also about the uh, strange history of potatoes and the man who made them popular by Amber Knuckle. Um, Really good stuff on the farmersalmanac.com. Never really realized what a good resource that was, but check that one out for sure. So uh, he really has single-handedly with his three-tier approach changed the hearts and minds of of both the gentry and the lower class uh, in favor of the potato. Yeah. Yep. And this potato effect turned out to be a very good thing for French agriculture. The potato fundamentally changed the productivity of these farms. It had more reliable yields than wheat, and you could grow it in the same fields that wheat grows in as long as the wheat crop was fallow. It was easy to grow in a lot of different varieties of soil. It was easy to farm. And this, like other people saw what was happening. Other world leaders caught on pretty quick. Catherine the Great over in Russia, King Adolf over in Sweden, they get on board the potato train. And you'll read, you'll read varying estimates, but one of the ones that I think is is the most optimistic comes, you know, it's quoted in this Atlas Obscura article. And They'll tell you that there are a couple of historians who believe that potatoes may have doubled Europe's food supply in terms of just pure calories, mm. meaning that they would finally be able to break the cycle of famine. I'm interested now. I want to see what the calorie content of a potato actually is, because that's a really good point. I mean, we know now, you know, potatoes are something to be avoided oftentimes because they're so carby, you know, and they're so calorically dense. But back then when food scarcity was much more of an issue, you wanted stuff that was calorically dense. Uh, That was really, really important. So it looks like uh, 163 calories per a medium potato, which actually isn't that insane. Um, But again, it is the carbs. uh, It has 37 grams of carbohydrates, which is not necessarily directly related to to calories. But um, I don't know. I've always been a little bit uh, unclear as to how carbs work, why cutting out carbs uh, is different than cutting calories. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because Potatoes do have a lot of other stuff going on, you know, mm-hmm. like they, it's, it's not just carbs, right? They can be a nutritious food, but you know, a lot of vitamin they, C. Know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, they also contain, uh, so all the essential amino acids you need to build proteins. They are lacking some stuff like over time, if you, it would offer what experts call a complete protein. If mm. you ate over 10 potatoes a day, which is a lot, even for me. But you would get deficiencies in certain vitamins, like vitamin B12, vitamin A. People are built to have a a slightly varied diet, right? That's just how they evolved. But still, the potato solves a lot of problems, and it gets kind of a bad rap. Like you said, Noel, with the the anti-carb crowd, you know, I know we might have some listeners right now who are, mad at us a little bit because they're like, today's the day. Today is the day I am going to get fries. It's okay. We're with you. It's going to be worth it. Everything in moderation. It'll be okay. There's one big elephant in the room. There's a there's a big potato in the room that we have to address. Uh, fellow fans of history, you'll realize that around the late 1700s, there was something else happening in France, something equally revolutionary. 
well, more revolutionary because it's it's literally it's the French Revolution. Yeah, if you have the inspirational tones of the score of the original cast recording of Les Miserables echoing in your mind, um, that's because we're talking about the French Revolution. Uh, and it was the French Revolution that potentially uh, could have put a damper on uh, Parmentier's potato revolution. You know, more important revolution, one would argue, sort of took precedent, but it didn't really last. Yeah, yeah. So this was all happening during the lead up to this tremendous upending of French civilization and society. Famine was still everywhere. Potatoes were useful, as Farmer's Almanac points out, uh, to help combat starvation, especially in northern France in 1785. But, of course, people in other parts of France were still uh, still thought potatoes were sus, as we would say nowadays. Uh, Parmentier, when he published that paper we mentioned, <sighs> It was ignored because this basically because this paper was published in 1789, right before the beginning of the revolution. And the king himself knew that Parmentier and potatoes got a bit of a raw deal there. The king eventually said, France will not forget you found food for the poor. And think about this. It was really unpopular during the French Revolution, Noel. Royalty. And you know it's really connected with royalty right now, Parmentier. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, that's a really good point. And we, we we sort of I, I don't want to. I hope we didn't sound like we were saying that this treatise uh, immediately caused the potato to explode. As a, you know, he did that that bit with like the uh, the 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 fake potato heist or whatever, and that did start to get folks interested on some level. But you're right; it was still associated with the wealthy. I mean, after all, they were stealing potatoes from the wealthy rather than like cultivating them themselves. But the whole idea was that it would become this like staple food. And it did, ultimately. It wasn't, though, until 1794 that potatoes really, really did start to take off in France. And that was, there was a really important moment in that year when Madame Marigot published her potato cookbook, and that uh, then began to associate the potato as the food for the revolutionaries. Because after all, Madame Marigot was also associated with the French Revolution. The official title of her book was La Cuisinière Républicaine, or The Female Republican Cook. Uh, so very much promoting these potatoes as the food of the common people, but also acknowledging that common people like variety as well. You don't just want to eat boiled potatoes every day. You want to cook it in a bunch of different ways. And that is one thing that makes the potato great is you really can cook it in lots of different ways. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a mm. stew, make them into a fondant, you know, uh, layer mm. them with cream and butter and, and cheese. You know, I mean, there's so many ways you can do a potato. Shred them, straight up fry them. Twice bake. Put them around stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Throw them in the air like confetti, little shreds of hash brown and try to catch them in your mouth. I think that's more a technique than a dish. But you see what we're saying. They're versatile. Folks. Definitely. And, and, you know, if we're getting uh, functional here uh, for, for a moment, I do want to say I learned recently I have a mandolin, you know, that you use to, yeah. to shred the potatoes to make mm -hmm. the – by the way, watch your hands on those. Use the little plastic nub that it comes with. Don't just think you can do it with your hand because you will get uh, slices on your hand. Those things are Go. no joke. 
Yeah, go more slowly than you think you should. Agreed. But here's the thing. When you're making hash browns, the key is to rinse the potato shreds oh, yeah. uh, so you get that starch off, and that's what causes them to fry up much more nice and, and crispily. You can put them in a bowl of water. Yep, that's what I'm saying. Uh, exactly about right. 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it's perfect. And you see the water change, too. And then you squeeze them with, like, paper towels or something to get yeah. that excess moisture out. Yeah, I haven't figured out what to do with the starch water, but I'm convinced I can I can figure out something. It won't just be wastewater. Anyway, you're right. Uh, and we you can tell we think a lot about potatoes because we're big fans. Uh, also, the person you, you just mentioned, Noel, uh, Madame Marigo, just to be completely clear, when we say that she's a Republican, we're talking about it in the French revolutionary yes, sense. The Republic. Very, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Mm -hmm. The Republic. Very different thing uh, than the way it would be used in the United States today. But after this becomes accepted as uh, the food for the revolutionaries, by the next year, tons of people are growing potatoes because they're a quick, efficient way to feed the forces of the rebellion during long sieges. So in the end, Parmentier survives the revolution and he keeps his head, which not everybody does, spoiler alert. Uh, and he is accepted back into society because he's thought of more as the potato guy than he is as a friend of the king. The revolutionaries also recognized his expertise, and they thought, you know, this guy can feed a lot of people. He, he was right about potatoes. Let's just, if we let him keep his head, let's see what else he comes up with. His job security increased during the rule of Napoleon because Napoleon was all about making France self-sufficient during the war across Europe. By this point, Parmentier's work in, had expanded past potatoes. He gets a lot of credit for potatoes today and rightly so, for popularizing them. But that wasn't all he was into. He, was, he wanted to know more about corn. He saw a lot of potential in beet sugar. And I wanted to ask you, uh, Noel, Max, beet sugar. Have you guys ever used that in anything? Is it a sweetener? You know, I, it, it feels like it might have been the B-side. If his, if his food research were an album, I feel like beet sugar is like track number two or three on the B-side. Oh, yeah, you can get it like in uh, in bags like you would sugar in the raw. It kind of looks like it's branded the same way. So you definitely could use uh, beet sugar to sweeten things for baking. I do know that beets are part of the reason that like impossible burgers bleed, quote unquote. Yes, that's um, true. So there's beet sugar in, in those as well. But no, I, I haven't messed with that, although I'm a huge fan of beets, of roasting beets. And that's one thing I, growing up, only knew the slimy gelatinous beets that slid out of a can, Ugh, yeah. uh, which is not what they are at all and a nice roasted beet um, with some goat cheese and maybe some uh, grilled pears or something like that over sure. some arugula that is what's up get some dried figs in there too mm -hmm. you know what i mean mm -hmm. class it up don't be afraid impress whoever you're dating all i'm saying is anyone out there that thinks they think beets are gross try uh, taking a golden beet and just drizzling it with uh, literally you leave the skin on drizzling with olive oil a little salt wrap it in a tin foil bake it in the oven at 350 for like I don't know, 20 minutes maybe. And then you just wipe the skin off with a paper mm -hmm. towel or a, or a kitchen rag and it just comes right off and then you slice them. And I swear they're the most, I don't know, how would you describe it? I'd describe it as earthy, kind of grassy, but also sweet and um, really, really nice in a salad. Yeah, and you can do these in slices as well, like roasted beets, way to go. You can make that your own. I would say 
I typically do it for like 35 minutes mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. 35, 40, uh, just because I like them super crispy. Nope. Throw right. some thyme on there. You know what I mean? You can throw some, uh, a little bit of salt and pepper. Anyway, yes, Parmentier was really into sugar. We think beets get a bad name. You know, parsnips are pretty good too, although I don't think Parmentier worked with them. Parsnips I've had a hard time with. I've never cooked them. I've only tried them a couple of times and I've always found that I've undercooked them and that they're very tough. And I think you really have to get them just right. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a way to roast them, but they can be they can be a little bit finicky. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't wait to hear more of your specific uh, food recipes from history. But like we said, Napoleon is digging Parmentier. He's like, the Napoleon is thinking, all right, this guy, more potato guy than he is a royalist. So he'll help us with this. He'll help us beat sugar and corn. In fact, Napoleon is enough of a fan of Parmentier that eventually he gives him the Legion of Honor. Mm. That's sort of like the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom or something, right? Yeah, it's it's similar. The Legion of Honor is the highest order of merit you can get in France, whether you are military or a civilian. It was established in 1802 by Napoleon himself. Very cool. Well, I think well-deserved. I don't know. There's really nothing particularly problematic in this dude's story, right? Which I thought was kind of interesting because usually there's some agenda or like even if something takes off, it's usually being done for some like weird nefarious purpose. But I think right. this guy just really, again, he, he came from suffering. This this whole experience came from him being jailed, you know, or imprisoned by the Prussians during the war and him realizing that potatoes were getting a bad rap and that he actually just really liked them. And uh, if you read his like letters and his writings about uh, potatoes, you could really tell the guy just really liked a potato and wanted everyone else to as well and saw the potential for it in a world where food wasn't for everybody or at least abundance of food wasn't for everybody. You know, it was uh, reserved for the upper classes. And I don't think he approved approved of that. He wanted to, you know, have everyone be fed and believe that everyone deserved to have a full belly. So I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, after he was granted this Legion of Honor, he passed away peacefully in 1813. He was 76 years old, buried in Paris. And if you go there, even today, you will see that his plot, his grave is surrounded by potato plants. And some people, when they go to visit, they leave a potato on his grave as as a way of saying thank you. What what I think is amazing about this is the more we looked into this, Noel, the more I was convinced this guy was like a earlier version of Norman Borlaug. I had this series I did a while ago, years and years ago, uh, animated series called Stuff of Genius, which was all about inventors and the inventions that changed the world. And Norman Borlaug is a guy who was like Parmentier, he was an agronomist, and he is often called the father of the Green Revolution. Mm. He went on to save over like a billion people from starvation. And Parmentier was doing a very similar thing with the potato. He he has a legacy that remains with us today. There, he's like you know, I think it was Atlas Obscura that called him like the Johnny Appleseed of the Tater. Right? Totally. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely accurate. It was, it was that Atlas Obscura article, uh, specifically Jim Clark made that excellent comparison. I love that, and it's totally true. Um, he is to this day remembered in you know the culinary tradition of of French cooking. There are quite a few dishes that are named after him. One of my favorite soups in the whole world, potato and leek soup, a version of that called potage parmentier, which is exactly just that. You can find a recipe for parmentage parmentier on the Farmer's Almanac. Just look for a potato leek soup recipe on the Farmer's Almanac and it will give you a little bit of that history. Uh, there's also like a version of it that's, that's served cold. It's called like yeah. Michisois. Not, not, not for me, not into a cold soup, but love I'm not a, a cold good, soup guy. Nah, I'm not a, not a, a gazpacho guy, but I love a good hot uh, potato and leek soup. And then there's another one um, called Hachis Parmentier that's a lot like a shepherd's pie, you know, with like different ground beef and vegetables and corn and stuff, of course, you know, topped with mashed potatoes and uh, hopefully some nice um, crisped cheese. And this, this is where we find ourselves today. According to the United Nations, the potato is grown in virtually every country that can do so in some in some form or fashion and some scale. And that makes it the world's fourth most important food crop. So go you potato and thank you, Peru. Oh, and speaking of Peru, Ben, I didn't realize per, the Peruvians also had like a, a method for freeze drying potatoes to keep themselves like in you know, in potatoes in case there was a blight or a crop shortage. And those freeze-dried potato flakes are kind of the, like, early version of what we know today is instant mashed potatoes. Yeah, I remember reading that. That's pretty That's pretty amazing as well. And that just goes to show you how long or, or how long people in Peru had been working with this native produce. No, although I know it's the end of our story and this episode is uh, has been going a little bit long, there is one last myth I believe we absolutely must bust or we must at least address, which is I I went to Belgium a while back. You remember that? I was mm-hmm. I was in Brussels for a minute and one of the one of the things that my friends told me as we were landing on the plane is, you know, don't call them french fries. You can ask for pommes frites, right? The fried potatoes, but do not call them French fries, because you see, folks, both France and Belgium claim to be the inventors of what we call French fries in the U.S. And uh, people are still going back and forth because now it's become a matter of national pride. Just say fries. Just say pommes frites. In France or in Belgium, be very careful with it. Yeah, frites just really means like fries, um, and palm is the French word for potato. So mm-hmm. it's true. Uh, and honestly, French fries, it just sounds like a dumb American alliterative kind of like, uh, you know, way of referring to something <laughs> because we don't feel like learning the language. Or what was that thing where people were like, oh, now we're freedom fries. Freedom fries. That freedom was, fries. That's so lame. I'll, also, I love the idea. Um, I'd love to hear about the way American cuisine is depicted or the way U.S. cuisine is depicted in other parts of the world. I was in a grocery store one time that had an American aisle and it was just junk food and peanut butter. 
<laughs> and one like very sugary cereal. That's hilarious. That's almost <laughs> like a diss aisle. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's a diss aisle. It was a diss track from the grocery store. Mm-hmm. That was and I think we all know this probably from uh, the movie Pulp Fiction or possibly from, from Travels or whatever. But uh, in Belgium, they don't put ketchup on their French fries. No. It's all about mayonnaise. And I have adopted that, and I think it's awesome. Um, but it's I know some good. people are very triggered by mayonnaise, but it's good. Fries and mayonnaise, quite good. You know what? I'll do it. It's terrible for your health, but uh, no question. fries and cheese sauce. Yeah, I'm not going to say no to it, especially those potato wedges at our local establishment. Dude. Cheese dip and wedges at the Righteous Room is like the off-menu item. It's like the secret menu at In-N-Out Burger. You gotta, you gotta try it if you come to if you come to our uh, our our neighborhood. Highly recommend. Yes, yes, highly recommended. Uh, and thank you to Parmentier for popularizing the potato because you know in my head that means that he is in some way responsible for all of the potato recipes that Europe produced after that point, you know? So thank you, Parmentier, the potato man. You know, another thing I didn't think about, we maybe alluded to it a little bit, but potatoes keep for quite a long time, just out, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like out in a bowl, in a dish on your, uh, on your, you know, kitchen counter before they start to get gross or like grow those. Even when they do grow those little eyes or those little tubers, they're mm-hmm. still absolutely use- usable. Um, oh, yeah. I have some red potatoes that I've been meaning to cook that I think uh, I'm going to follow the lead of our, of our subject today and, uh, and, and fricassee up something for lunch because they're also very versatile and a good kind of base for using stuff in your fridge that maybe you need to use. Uh, mm-hmm. Make a little, uh, you know, like a little stir fry with some potatoes and some vegetables, maybe add an egg in there. You know, I think I'm going to I'm going to do that. Yeah, nice. Yeah, they're hardy, too. They're they're durable and, and tough to kill. In fact, during the Great Depression, uh, some of my ancestors were able to survive because they found a frozen potato patch. Uh, which is a, a strange and inspiring, if tragic, story. But let's not end on a note like that. Off-air, ridiculous historians, Noel uh, and Max and I were talking, and Max, there's something that you've had on your mind since we started this episode. Is that true? That is correct. There was this map that came out. You guys know those maps that it's like the most Googled blank by state and stuff like that. Sure. So there's this one from Zipia. Zipia, I, I've never used the website before. It's a job recruiting website called What Job Each State Googles More Than Any Other. And it is one of the most enjoyable maps I've ever read in my entire life. So like a few of them are pretty normal. Like Wisconsin is Beer Brewer, uh, Minnesota's Lumberjack, and uh, Nevada is Bus Driver. Okay. Huh. <laughs> okay. But some of them get a little strange. So California is lion tamer. Um, New York is professional cuddler. And my personal favorite weird one, uh, North Carolina is pirate. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. These are aspirational jobs? These are just what job each state Googles more than any other. For for any reason. Yeah. So I I could argue, you could argue aspirational jobs. Right. (laughs) But the reason why, actually, no, I want to keep that because the reason I bring this up is we got to go to America's frozen wetland, which is, of course, Ohio, which if you've (laughs) ever been to that state, you'll understand why I say that. Their number one most Google job is just potato. (laughs) (laughs) That's what uh, aspirational indeed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, I think that's what um, Noel Gallagher called his brother Liam. I believe he mm-hmm. called him a f***ing potato. 
which is also a very uh, underappreciated emoji. Just the yeah. potato, you know, a uh, big fan. I also love if we're talking British insults. First, well done, Max. Thank you for that. I mean, yes. I'm going to be bothered by that for a while. Uh, but for British insults, which always impressed me, I was hanging out in Ponce City Market pre-pandemic, which is where our office is based in Atlanta, Georgia. And I heard a British person call someone else a shape as an insult. S-H-A-P-E. They said, you f***ing shape. Wow. Which is like good, a uh, good insult for reasons I don't understand. And I think you need the accent to pull it off. Did Did you know that the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Michael Myers, the character in the Halloween movies is referred to as the shape. I wish I had learned more about the context of that situation. It's just hard to stop people and say like, oh, excuse me, sir. I, I am not British, but I do respect the insults employed by your culture. Last thing, another Britishism with shape is uh, a, an expression for dancing is throwing shapes. So I would ah. I would say in that context, you know, like I say, it's tough to go in there and say like, excuse me, I'm, I'm not British. I don't know what's going on, but I'd love to learn a little more about this context because I want to see if I can pull off shape as an insult. So what is your deal, sir? Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? Before, yeah, before we go, I do have to ask Max, what is the job people are Googling the most in Georgia? Oh, I'm glad you asked, because if you live in Atlanta, this makes sense. It is stripper. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Did not see that coming. No, neither did I, but it it, it, it tracks. Uh, if anyone's interested in uh, some more like Atlanta-centric kind of jokes and memes, there's a couple of really good Instagram accounts. I believe one is just called Atlanta Memes or something like that. Um, you can uh, meme like a local. There you can. Yeah, you didn't see it come in the way. France didn't see the potato on the way, but that's how history works. Uh, Noel, thank you for this. What what a cool ride. Any any excuse to talk about food is a good episode for me. I'd love to hear everybody's epic uh, potato-related recipes or moments. Uh, and thank you, of course, to the one and only Max Williams. Ben, are those potato fondants, are they just like like cookie cutter, like cut out like a scallop, or are they layered? Because I'm looking at the pictures of them. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so what you, what I like to do is take a take a pretty good medium-sized potato, you peel it, you chop the, uh, the ends off, and then you usually, if it's a medium potato, you can get about two cylinders out of it. So you cut that in half, and then you take whichever half is the most even. It's usually where you made the cut in the middle. Uh, and then you just you plop them down with some uh, with oil initially. You gotta use a cast iron pan. You finish them in the oven. So it's a whole thing. But if you want like eight of those little cylinders, just get four potatoes. Got it. Got it. And like Ben said, let us know your favorite potato recipes. Uh, we're still working on getting that email sorted out. You don't think it'd be that difficult, uh, but I, I promise it'll happen. Um, in the meantime, please reach out to us as individuals on Instagram. I am at Brown. And you can find me on Instagram in a burst of creativity. I've named myself at Ben Bullen. You can also find our super producer, Max Williams, at uh, potatofan87. 
And holy cow, Ben, you just sent a test email to ridiculous at iheartmedia.com and it appears to have worked. Well, that's good news. Uh, maybe maybe I'll get it as well. We'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. But it does look like our email address is up and running. Thanks, of course, to Casey Pegram. Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed this banging track. It's probably playing lightly right now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And thanks to you, Ben. And thanks to you, Noel. Uh, thanks to one of our favorite potatoes, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.